This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. On board today with their analysis, we have Jim McCormick, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Iowa State University in our AIMS studio. Hi, Jim. Hi, Ben. Megan Goldberg with us as well, Assistant Professor of American Politics at Cornell College in Mount Vernon. Hi there, Megan. Hi, Ben. Good to be here. Good to have you with us. And a little bit later in the hour, we want to ask uh, Jim and Megan what they've had their eyes on, especially uh, with the first few weeks of this Iowa legislative session, just to put that out there. And we'd like to have you join our conversation as well. one 780 In addition to that, uh, we'll look at uh, South Carolina this weekend, that primary and beyond in the presidential primary race. Uh, is South Carolina Nikki Haley's last stand? Uh, uh, she's uh, doing some ad buys, uh, putting out some ads there, uh, characterizing Biden and Trump as sort of grumpy old men. That reference to the 90s film. Also, I want to ask uh, Jim and Megan about that enormous award in the E. Jean Carroll defamation case. Uh, And then foreign policy will lean heavily on Jim McCormick's uh, expertise there. Uh, How uh, the U.S., uh, Biden promising to respond to the deadly attack on U.S. troops in Jordan. Um, Plenty more to come as well. Let's start off with uh, immigration uh, slash uh, border security. As we heard in our news, the uh, House Republicans have moved to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary. Uh, that would be the first time uh, a cabinet secretary, secretary has been impeached uh, for 150 years, I think, is, is what I read. The House voted very early today to advance this case against Alejandro Mayorkas to the House, the full House. They argue uh, without showing clear evidence, I, I guess, yet, unless Megan and, and or Jim can point that out, that he's failed to secure the southern border. It was an 18 to 15 party line vote. Um, the panel endorsed a resolution charging Mayorkas with refusing to uphold the law and breaching the public trust by failing to choke off this surge of migrants across the U.S. border with Mexico. And uh, let's hear a little bit of audio connected with this. The chairman of the House Homeland Security Committee, Republican Mark Green of Tennessee, advancing these articles of impeachment uh, against Mayorkas yesterday. We cannot allow this border crisis to continue. We cannot allow fentanyl to flood across our border, our criminals to waltz in undeterred. And we cannot allow a cabinet secretary with no regard for the separation of powers or the rule of law to remain in office. That is why today we present this committee with the articles of impeachment against Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Republicans accusing Mayorkas of perjury. Uh, Let's go back to the basis of that with this exchange from 2022 at the center of those claims. Here's audio of Republican Representative Chip Roy of Texas questioning Mayorkas. Do we have operational control, yes or no? Yes, we do. And we have we operational are, control of the borders. Yes, we do. And, Congressman, and we are working to... So what operational control defined? In this section, the term operational control means the prevention of all unlawful entries into the United States, including entries by terrorists, other unlawful aliens, instruments of terrorism, narcotics, and other contraband. Do you stand by in your testimony that we have operational control in light of this definition? And Congressman, I think the um, Secretary of Homeland Security would have said the same thing in 2020. Now, the Democratic chair, Pete Aguilar of 
California spoke at a press conference yesterday about the border deal. That's also tied up in this that um, the House Speaker Mike Johnson has warned is dead on arrival. Aguilar, Representative Aguilar, stating that the MAGA Republicans in the House and Senate are walking away from a bipartisan deal that would strengthen border security, support Israel and Ukraine because former President Donald Trump ordered them to do so. Let's listen. This was never about securing the border. This was never about migrants, and this was never about protecting our country. Just like the baseless impeachments and everything else the MAGA Republicans have pretended to care about, it has always been about helping Donald Trump become president again. Join our conversation, one 780 9100 as we talk about immigration and border security in the initial part of this program. River to River at iowapublicradio.org is our email. Megan, start us off. Uh, help us understand what you see going on here. Do Republicans, let's focus on impeachment, have a case for the impeachment? Yeah, you know, so I think this is really interesting. You know, hearing sort of the, the definition of um operational control of the border. I'm like, I don't know if we've ever had operational control of the border, if that's right. the standard. Uh, of course, like, right, going back centuries. Um, and and so I think, you know, uh, the sort of cynical view here and in, in sort of coupled with what we've seen elsewhere uh, with immigration policy right now is that uh, there is an interest electorally of the Republican Party to keep immigration on the forefront of sort of the issue agenda that people are thinking about. Um, mm. And Republicans are sometimes perceived as stronger on immigration in sort of this, this very specific way that they are sort of tough on border issues. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know that sort of like legally speaking, uh, is there a case... I. I don't really know um, what sort of like operational control means in, in more of the vernacular. But, um, you know, speaking politically, the Republican majority is so narrow in Congress right now that um, if I was the Republican Party whip right now, I would not like my job um, because you can't lose more than, I think, two votes. And so I think mm-hmm. politically, this is a little bit uh, it's going to be a struggle for the speaker. Yeah. Uh, Jim, your thoughts here. Does Mayorkas face the prospect of removal by the Senate? That is in Democrats' hands. And if not, what are the goals here of the House Republicans? Well, yeah, there's little likelihood that uh, Mayorkas would be convicted uh, in in the Senate. Um, You know, the Democrats are going to certainly stay together and you need a, you know, a two thirds majority uh, in that chamber to uh, to convict someone. So that's highly unlikely. I mean, it, impeachment is a legal process, but let's also remember that impeachment is a political process, uh, mm. as even some uh, legal analysts have, uh, have pointed out. Uh, and the, sort of the House can determine, you know, what, is, what is, constitutes high crimes and misdemeanors. I was taking a look this morning at the actual uh, articles of impeachment, and, you know, the the first article is really quite long, and it cites, uh, I don't know, seven or eight um, items from the uh, Immigration and National Security Act, uh, which they claim that Mayorkas has violated. And then the second article uh, deals with uh, whether there's been a, be- a breach of trust in terms of some of the, f- he, the they are claim sort of these false statements uh, that were uh, entered by um, uh, Mayorkas and some of his testimony and some of his statements. But I think, you know, Megan is right, operational control. And there was even uh, at the time of this impeachment hearing yesterday, there was a report coming from H, uh, 
HS, uh, Department of HSS, Homeland Security, let me say it that way, mm-hmm. uh, in which, the, you know, operational control, you know, was never really, you know, clearly defined. And, and that at various times, operational control really never, really never existed at the border. So that kind of uh, statement, political statement, you know, is probably not uh, uh, is not supported here. I think, uh, as was suggested here, I mean, the, the purpose here is uh, to have a political statement and to have a have a trial, if you will, within the Senate, uh, you know, during the campaign, uh, you know, would, uh, would go on for some time, perhaps, uh, before the, the verdict is uh, is issued here. And so that's part of the uh, Republican um, aim here, it seems to me. I think the more immediate task for Speaker Johnson is, uh, as was pointed out, that with the with the two uh, member majority here, and I've already heard this morning that a couple of the members are sort of wavering on the Republican mm-hmm. side of whether they would actually vote for these articles of impeachment. All so this is really a test again. I can't can't imagine that that Johnson would take it. Speaker Johnson would take it to the floor if he does not have uh, the votes to actually uh, uh, invoke impeachment here. Jim McCormick and Megan Goldberg are analysts today on River to River Politics Wednesday. James is in Des Moines tuned in. And James, I think you want to go exactly where I want to go. We want to focus a little bit more on this negotiated, it's been weeks in the making, this uh, bipartisan deal in the Senate. James, welcome to the program. I'm wondering, what are they doing impeaching Mayorkas when they hold up the uh, Comprehensive Immigration Bill? Yeah, Uh, interesting comment. well, oh, I'm sorry, I cut you off, James, but let me fill in a, a, a little bit for, for those not up quite up to speed on that. We, we've we seen this shift, Megan and Jim, in, in Biden's border policy since taking office. If you remember the start of his term, he's, he paused on nearly all deportations. He vowed to end the harsh practices of his predecessor. Now those early promises seemingly set aside. Uh, we have this, you know, the tripling of people crossing, uh, attempting to cross the U.S. border, record levels. Um, on Friday, the president imploring Congress to grant him the power to shut down the border so he could contain this uh, uncontrolled immigration. Um, uh, he's also embracing stricter border measures, uh, speaking of uh, support for this emerging border and security immigration deal on the Hill uh, that uh, James referenced there. Uh, much tougher policies. Uh, uh, Megan, what do you think of this deal and the the, the point there that James has uh, brought up there? Why would Republicans, who would have been seen as tough on border policy, be holding up a uh, a deal that seems to give the Republican side much of what they've been asking for. Yeah, I mean, so I think that uh, that the speaker has sort of like showed their hand in this case that the the president or former President Trump is not interested in them passing this deal right now. Um, and you know, I think that it, even though a lot of Americans express a really strong preference for bipartisanship. Um, we don't always sort of see that uh, in action um, and that sometimes your electoral interests are not aligned with being bipartisan. Um, and so, you know, I think there's a, a divide in the Republican Party, perhaps. Um, but I think we see Biden shifting to the right on immigration ahead of the election, sort of seeing that this is a sort of an issue dominating um, you know, maybe people's minds when it comes to who they're voting for. Um, 
And so there's an attempt by Democrats to sort to compromise, but then the Republicans are sort of realizing, I think, the the political ramifications for them of being sort of compromising with Democrats, which is bad for them. Yeah. Okay, I'd like to get Jim's view on this uh, bipartisan Senate deal that seems to be emerging, and then we'll move along from there. But we'll have to wait for Jim's comments until after the break. Jim McCormick is with us, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at ISU. Megan Goldberg, you just heard her there, Assistant Professor of American Politics at Cornell College. Join our conversation on this Politics Day, 1-866-780-9100. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion. The Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Back with more of River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer on this Politics Wednesday. Our political scientists, Jim McCormick of ISU and Megan Goldberg of Cornell College, join us, 1-866-780-9100, River to River at iowapublicradio.org. To finish up our conversation, um, the analysis for Megan and Jim on the border security, immigration equality. Jim, uh, your thoughts after I share a couple of quotes, one from President Biden talking about the emerging border security and immigration deal on the Hill. It'll give me, as president, the emergency authority to shut down the border until I could get it back under control. If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. At the same time, Donald Trump Uh, seemingly trying to tank this agreement, urging the House Speaker, Mike Johnson, not to support it. His quote there, a lot of the senators are trying to say, respectively, uh, uh, respectfully, they're blaming it on me. I said, that's okay. Please blame it on me, please, because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill. And I will tell you, a bad bill is I'd rather have no bill than a bad bill. Jim McCormick. Well, I think there's political gamesmanship going on on both sides here, as your as your quotes uh, suggested here. You know, if the Democrats have seen impeachment as a political issue on the part of the Republicans, the Republicans now are seeing the Senate bill as you know sort of a political issue uh, with with regard to the Democrats, because the fear is by Republicans, at least as I understand it, is that if a bill is passed and the president takes any action on the border, he gets credit to take that issue off the agenda uh, for the election, even though the immigration issue has been festering for, for several years here. So I think it's really, it's really gamesmanship on both sides. And, uh, you know, yeah. uh, and unfortunately, you know, the, the loser is, a good, is good public policy here uh, in terms of getting this piece of legislation enacted here. Um, and I'm not sure where we go. I think we'll, we'll probably continue to have that as an issue through uh, uh, through the election as well. Yeah. Um, Peter in Des Moines writes us an email. He uh, says NPR's own research confirms that most fentanyl, and we heard that mentioned by, was that Representative Green, I believe, there in that cut a few moments ago. Uh, he says, it confirms that most fentanyl comes into the U.S. from Mexico through legal border crossing, crossings and is brought to the U.S., by U.S. citizens, not by those seeking asylum from horrific violence and poverty 
in their countries of origin. End quote from uh, Peter in Des Moines' e- email there. Uh, Megan, that, that, is, that is also a, a distortion perhaps that we heard uh, in that quote, fentanyl is not being backpacked through the desert uh, on on the backs of these people fleeing whatever they are from, um, you know, further south. Yeah, you know, so I, I, I sort of thought, was thinking about this uh, as we were talking before the break. And over the break, I pulled up actually some data from U.S. Customs and Border Protection just to see, because I think, you know, the, the rhetoric around how you know, bad or dire the situation is. Um, like, I always just want to see for myself. Like, let's look. Let's look at the data. And you know, I. You know, if you just like look at the bar graph, sort of showing by year, there are more uh, sort of encounters with uh, at the border now, and it's been going up over time. But if you look at it, like, I, it's just not this like really. Everyone can have their own interpretation, but it's not this like wildly dire story that like pops out at you as you look at a graph. Um, and I think the the point here that the loser is policy is really, I think, uh, underemphasized that when we uh, fight over immigration policy, like there are people's lives at stake here. There's people in the U.S. Indeed. Uh, and that they all sometimes have to pause what they're doing. They're in more danger. Um, and so I think that, you know, this this it's clearly in some ways an electoral strategy from Biden uh, I think it's interesting, given the, the backlash Trump faced early in his administration, especially over immigration throughout his administration. Um, and, and you know, thinking about this maybe could uh, bring some folks in from the center right to sort of Biden's camp. Um, but the challenge of building this big sort of broad coalition is there's a lot of folks sort of looking at Biden's left or rightward shift on immigration and wondering, like, what happened to the, the campaign promises and the candidate that they voted for in 2020? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And, and the, this is filtering down to sort of local Iowa politics. Uh, and we have a legislative session going on. I want to ask you both about that in a moment. But smuggling people would be a new crime in under in Iowa under a bill advanced this week by House Republicans, uh, a bill that would also uh, require the use of a federal system to verify immigration status of non-citizens enrolling in public assistance. Also a bill in the Iowa House that would ban undocumented workers, undocumented students, rather, from qualifying for in-state tuition at Iowa's three public universities and 15 community colleges. Uh, so we see immigration really um, at all levels of our politics here. Uh, let's go to the Iowa legislature and ask you both. Um, we've had several weeks uh, of this session. Um, we have um, uh, had a look this uh, earlier this week at gender identity, um, a bill uh, that would uh, seek to remove gender identity protections from the civil rights law here in Iowa, adding gender dysphoria uh, to the definition of a disability that would be protected under law. Um, Megan, start us off here. Y- your thoughts on perhaps that bill or what you have your eyes on this session so far? Yeah, you know, so I think um, you know, one of my interests is sort of state education policy. Um, and so one of the things sort of after last session where I felt like um, Reynolds and Republicans were sort of like stretching past their popularity to push uh, and, and, and pass policies, sign them into law that weren't really popular. 
Um, and so I had sort of expected that perhaps they would scale back on those a little bit uh, in this legislative session, sort of leading up to uh, people who are up for re-election and have to explain what's happening to their constituents. Um, and, and realistically, I think what that might look like this session, too, is trying to figure out how in the world they're going to pay for uh, the educational savings accounts. We saw even this year they were quite a bit over budget and. Uh, and, you know, sort of see where they're, they're tremendously, tremendous, <laughs> tremendously tremendously over. Yes. Oh, uh, so they're, yes, they're popular. Pop, they're being used. Yeah. Yes. But it's a pretty small pro- portion of the population uh, that's benefiting from them. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's a lot of money. And so sort of trying to figure out you have to balance the budget somewhere uh, and sort of watching, yeah. watching for those cuts. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we, uh, just throw in a comment from Jay in Ames writing, uh, he's worried about the removal of gender identity as a protected class and what he calls the gutting of the AEAs, the area education agencies. Jim, what do you have your eyes on uh, in this session so far? Well, I was going to talk about the ADA because, um, in fact, uh, AEAs? the governor yeah. came out mm-hmm. with a, a- AEA. <laughs> yes. Area <laughs> right. educational agencies. <laughs> um, yes. You know the legislation. She has, you know, some revisions, and I, I thought that that was, you know, it's going to be one of the kind of the key points that she is going to make, and it does call for more state control over these a uh, AEA uh, age um, agencies here, uh, and so that, you know, that's uh, an important kind of transformation that 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 can take place. One of the changes that she made, which I thought was probably responding to some of her own constituencies, was that these area agencies could not only engage in special education, but they could also provide other services. She had originally proposed to cut those out. Uh, But I think there's still going to be a tangle here because of so much more state control. The state will have control over who has appointed these directors of these AEA uh, agencies, if that's not redundant, <laughs> um, uh, as well as controlling over their properties and, and so on. So I think that that's where the, you know, the, the kind of a conflict will come about. So I think that, but that's going to be one of the major uh, efforts. The other part of the major effort that she talked about in her uh, State of the State address, which we haven't heard much mm-hmm. about, but, you know, would be implemented, and that is to raise teacher salary, uh, salaries here, um, you know, to $50,000. Uh, that would be, I think, an important kind of move, particularly in the, in the election year. Now, some of these other issues, and I was looking at the whole, the, the plenipotentiary of issues, really, that has been introduced, you know, on the Republican side, a religious edu- a freedom bill here, uh, um, as well as talk about, you know, re- removing gender identity, uh, in-state tuition for undocumented uh, questions, and so on. It seems to me, Many of those are going to be kind of dead on arrival in terms of how far they get along, but they are, of course, very important in terms of the electoral uh, campaigns that are coming up. That some members can point Message, to those messaging of is what you're saying, Jim. These absolutely, bills, absolutely. Yeah, virtue, mm. uh, virtual signaling, I think, is a, is the operative <laughs> term now here. You know that that uh, some of these legislators are are really engaging in. I don't really see those going anywhere. That's why my focus has been on, you know, the the area education uh, agencies. And the other one I want to mention is, you know, kind of hidden here, aside from teacher salary, was there's also this proposal for tax cuts. And I suspect that this across the Republican agenda is very popular here. 
And of course, it's not an issue that even across Democratic constituencies that they're not interested in, as long as those tax cuts can be targeted uh, to those that who's, uh, would really benefit. And I think that was sort of the, uh, the minority leader in the, in, the, in the House actually made this statement a few, a few weeks ago that, you know, trying to get those tax cuts that would really benefit uh, lower income people uh, would, be, uh, would be something that perhaps some Democrats could support as well. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer, Jim McCormick of ISU, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College, our two political scientists. We have a number of other things on our docket that uh, well, let's move along um, here and talk, uh, go, go nationally here. This, this Friday's news, so let's talk about that. Uh, a New York jury on Friday ordered former President Donald Trump to pay over $83 million to writer E. Jean Carroll for defaming her after she accused him of sexual assault decades uh, ago. Uh, Carroll's lawyers had asked the nine-person jury for heavy damages against Trump, pointing to his continued uh, attacks from uh, both the White House as president and after he left office. Uh, Trump's lawyers are appealing the decision, uh, according to Trump, absolutely ridiculous. I fully disagree with both verdicts and will be appealing uh, this whole Biden-directed witch hunt focused on me and the Republican Party, according to Trump. By the way, there's no evidence that this is connected with the Biden White House at all. It was a civil case brought by an individual person, not by a government entity. Let's listen to E. Jean Carroll. Uh, she spoke on CNN on Monday after this settlement was handed down. Um, and uh, she uh, uh, had this to say. For him, the courtroom was not a courtroom to him. It was a campaign stop. That was clear. Um, so we had two different objectives. Ours was to win a case. His was to win voters. We'll see how that plays out, that he's uh, using me to win voters. Sexual assault. A man found liable for sexual assault is using the woman he sexually assaulted to get votes. You may soon, though, have quite a bit of his money. And I wonder how you plan to use that. Oh, it's inspiring. We talk about it a lot. <laughs> We're going to do good with that money. We're going to do... Mary Trump has suggested uh, we turn Trump Tower into an animal sanctuary, for instance. A joke. That was a joke, Poppy. <laughs> uh, no, but we're, we're inspired to uh, do not waste a penny of this. And we have some good ideas that we're working on. And so I think one of the things we could do, seeing as how he's very instrumental in taking away women's rights over their bodies across the United States, maybe we can think about how we can restore women their rights. Hmm. Use a little money for that. Trump says he'll appeal, and of course it may be a while before E. Jean Carroll has that money to do with, uh, as she uh, says she has those plans for. Megan Goldberg, so many aspects to drill down here, but uh, pick, pick one or two that you have, <laughs> are thinking about because it's, it's a fascinating case and uh, so much potential political fallout in this election year. Yeah, you know, you know, I think one of my, uh, the part that jumps out at me that I think she really hits the nail on the head is this idea of, um, it, this, this theme sort of throughout the last, oh gosh, however long it's been that Trump has been in and out of the courtroom. Uh, and the way in which, you know, on the one side, I think there's a lot of folks in the U.S. who, who sort of like 
breathed a sigh of relief when it seems like Trump is going to face legal consequences for for actions that we all sort of saw play out sometimes on national TV. Um, and this this contradiction where there are these legal consequences, but then Trump turns around and leverages this um, for popularity and for votes. Um, and, you know, sort of the way that he's uh, drawing on some sentiment in certain proportions of the population um, that are going to react emotionally very strongly to a woman winning a lawsuit like this um, that we're not used to. You know, I think that uh, one of our local writers, Liz Lenz, wrote about how we're not used to seeing women um, win in, in battles like this mm. and actually hold perpetrators accountable. Um, and, and that victory, um, you know, I think to, to her maybe seems a little bit um, muted than when you can see the way Trump uses it uh, publicly and politically um, to sort of like feed the, the stoke, the rage of, of people um, to get them to turn out and vote for him. Yeah. Jim McCormick, we have a couple minutes before the break. Your, your thoughts on this massive uh, award in this defamation case uh, against Ronald, Donald Trump? It is a massive award. Uh, Eighty three million dollars, I think, was the was the number here. And, you know, she promises to do good with it. I wonder if she will also use it in terms of, you know, some campaign efforts uh, against uh, against uh, Trump as well. Um, I think Megan's right. You know, the the effort to you know, that Trump has been really successful with all of these court cases. And, of course, this court case is not over. I mean, he's going to appeal this. He's got all these other all these other cases. And it, it does actually, you know, his popularity goes up after each of these court cases here. So I'll be interested to see if she will be using some of this money actually to, uh, to sort of campaign against Trump or will, you know, she said she's going to do it for good. And, and, and maybe that's one of the one of the ways that she can, uh, you know, uh, have an impact here in terms of uh, keeping that issue mm -hmm. of, you know, a kind of a sexual assault uh, in the people's mind here. And because people are going to be repelled by that there, they're, it seems to me, you know, and the uh, fact that he was held liable uh, on this matter. Yeah. This goes back to an earlier jury in May of, uh, of 2023 as well. Uh, when he was not a yeah, right. We'll be, we'll be back after a short break. Uh, Jim, sorry to cut you off there. And we'll be back with more from Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, Megan Goldberg of Cornell College. Uh, let's talk about Nikki Haley in South Carolina, the primary in her home state this weekend. When we return, it's River to River from IPR News. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. So glad you're with us midstream in this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's a Politics Wednesday with Megan Goldberg and Jim McCormick, our two political scientists. In just a moment, I want to lean on Jim's foreign policy expertise to ask his thoughts about the uh, deal to pause fighting in the Gaza Strip uh, being negotiated. Also, what about um, uh, the response to the death of those three U.S. service members uh, in Jordan? But first, uh, let's talk about the primary race. Uh, uh, South Carolina coming up uh, this weekend, I think Saturday, 
In a new series titled Grumpy Old Men, the Haley Campaign, unveiling online videos, digital ads, uh, voter emails that will underscore the ways in which Haley has argued that the two-party frontrunners are alike. Uh, the episodes have titles like Stumbling Seniors and Basement Buddies and Profligate Poles, uh, taking shots at, among other things, her rivals, signs of mental confusion, according to her campaign. Now, Haley is headed into this heated face-off in South Carolina on this weekend. It's a, a state where Haley was born and raised. Uh, she led it as governor. Uh, polls, though, showing her trailing the former president by double digits in her home state. Uh, what do you think about this attack on both of the front runners, uh, Megan, uh, and how will be she be doing in this race? Well, how well does she need to be doing in order to stay in? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think this sort of the substance of the attack is an obvious one, uh, an obvious attack to go for. I'm surprised she didn't sort of emphasize it earlier. Maybe she wanted to wait until Trump was really, I don't know how it would have been more clear that he was the front runner, but um, I suppose winning two states will will solidify that. Um, so I think you know the the topic and the substance of it is is obvious and it matches the critiques that, that a lot of people have. I just don't think it's going to move people. Uh, you know, I I don't think that for the people for whom this attack is going to land, they're already planning to vote for Haley or. You know, at, at most, perhaps it could get a few sort of center right or centrist Democrats to like go and vote with the Republican Party and, and maybe vote for Haley. But, um, you know, trailing in your home state is um, and we've seen sort of I think the decline. I, I think this is correct, sort of the decline of home state effects where candidates don't do as well in their home states as they used to. Uh, it's mm. partisanship is more powerful. But to, to lose your home state has to sting a little bit. Yeah. Um and so, you know, I think that this would is a situation that it won't move people. Yeah, would she, <laughs> yeah, and would she, I mean, losing her home state by double digits, as polls seem to indicate, would she have to hang it up? Megan? I, I mean, I would, I would, if it were me. Um, I probably would have before I got there, if I saw the writing on the wall. I'd rather avoid that <laughs> loss. Um, you know, and, and so I'm a little okay. surprised she hasn't yet. <laughs> Okay, uh, Jim, what do you think? Will the grumpy old men attack work for, for Haley? Uh, um, probably not. I, I always wanted to check. Maybe maybe I've had a mental lapse here, but I think the, the presidential primary in South Carolina is not until the end of February. Am I, am I missing something on that? The Democratic primary is this Saturday. You're right. But mm. the Republican one is on the 24th. Uh, at least okay. that's what my calendar says here. Um, All right. So she's All got right, a little Jim. bit of time. Standing. <laughs> yeah. She's got a little bit of time. Okay. She's stand, got, stand corrected, but she's, but but still go, go, going. Ahead. Yeah, going ahead. Does she have enough time? Yeah. To, I mean, I, I just uh, checked the real, real, real clear politics. Okay. You know, latest polling my, data, and she's still thirty points behind. Although a recent poll hasn't been taken, and it hasn't been taken since DeSantis and Christie left the race, and she's going to get. You know some of those uh, some of those supporters, those anti-Trump supporters. So I, I suspect that it's going to be a little bit closer, even though Trump has been able to kind of get all of the legislators in the state, uh, you know, and also the federal legislators from South Carolina, basically to uh, to to back him. Uh, but but I, she has vowed to go on, and you know, if you look at the rest of the calendar, a few a couple of weeks later, in March the fifth. 
uh, you know, there are 15 different states, and some of those are going to be very, very favorable uh, to her in terms of, you know, particularly uh, some along the East Coast, Ma- Massachusetts, Vermont, for Virginia, they're going to have independent Republicans who are going to be um, pretty much anti-Trump here, as well as California would be another one. So I'm not sure that, I mean, if she does as well as she did in New Hampshire with a sort of 11-point gap or whatever, I think that she could really, really remain uh, remain in the uh, race and remain remain viable, although there will be tremendous amount of pressure for her to, to get out. But she just uh, got another million and a half dollars from investors on Wall Street. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, she's in in that uh, way, she's in a fairly good position to continue on. On the Democratic side, we heard this week that the uh, main Democratic super PAC supporting President Biden's reelection bid, it's called Future Forward, um, started this week to reserve $250 million in advertising across the most important battleground states, uh, said to be the single largest purchase of political advertising by a super PAC in our nation's history. Now, I don't think th- and these ads don't start anytime soon, running August through Election Day. But it's interesting here, uh, covering seven states, this huge ad buy, so... Uh, these are the main presidential battlegrounds, I, I, I guess. Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Megan, are those the seven key states that uh, will, with their electoral votes, essentially decide who's the next president? Yeah, you know, so I think we always wait for like the battleground states to sort of see uh, who's going to matter. But there is lots of evidence that the the states that are sort of the closest are the ones that are the most influential. Um, and, you know, that list is not super surprising. We've got some frequent flyers on there. Um, can you, Ben, did I miss? I, Ohio was not on that list, right? Not in, this is this is a write up that I had no I, I did not see that on my list. But, okay, um, I that's like that's that a in, little surprising. In previous. <laughs> Well, I've I've seen that in other in other write ups that Ohio is one of those, perhaps. Mm, okay, not. yeah, and, and in, so in some I mean, people's it's just, eyes, yeah, yes, yeah, right. And so what what is considered battleground is sort of a little up for interpretation, but they do change over time. Uh, and you know, so I actually just had students presenting uh, at the end of last semester in my class uh, a case for a national popular vote, and in their research, they were sort of surprised to find out uh, that in over the last few decades, one of the swingiest swingiest states in the country was (laughs) Iowa. And, you know, sort of in their mind, thinking over the last couple elections, that Iowa is sort of this like red state. Um, And so what the battleground states are changes over time, it changes with demographics, um, and it changes with political preferences. So it's always sort of interesting to see, but uh, some of them, right, they're there over and over again. Yeah. Before we move on, Jim, you are indeed right, according to the information that I looked up, the South Carolina presidential primary, not until February 24th. So I stand corrected. Sorry about that. Let's move on to some foreign policy here. Uh, and, and to you first on this, Jim, to talk about this deal to pause fighting in the Gaza Strip being negotiated, uh, the, the bare bones of it, a six-week break in fighting between Israel and Hamas, the freeing of all remaining civilian hostages, the release of some Palestinian prisoners held by Israel, parts of the deal having been accepted in principle by Israel, uh, said to be under consideration by Hamas. Details still need to be worked out. Uh, Jim, your thoughts on this deal and its significance, if it comes to be? 
Well, it's it's highly significant. I mean, the suffering that has been going on in Gaza is just sort of almost unmentionable. I mean, the you know, number of people that have been killed, and now you know also the sort of the pausing of the the funding of the relief work, um, UN relief agency here, uh, is also problematic. So I'm hopeful for for this, but I think one of the Israeli demands was that the Hamas leaders uh, are exiled unless there's been a change in that. And that has been one of the real sticking points here, uh, that they would would be removed from from Gaza as part of this uh, as part of this deal here, and so that that remains, I think, a, a sticking point here. I suppose a longer kind of issue here, and this is where the Israelis have uh, and and Netanyahu have a particular problem. Uh, you know, they're they're unwilling to, you know, to uh, say that they're going to give up kind of control uh, over Gaza and. That's sort of become a, a, a non-negotiable uh, uh, effort here in terms of getting a, a permanent ceasefire. But I'm optimistic that we're going we're to get some uh, some deal here, uh, and and we're going to get some more release of uh, hostages and getting even a even a short term, even if it's six weeks or you know yeah. two months uh, pause, uh, will be really extraordinarily yeah. beneficial uh, to the yeah. to the situation in uh, in Gaza here. Yeah. Uh, on the domestic front, Megan, what do you see as the repercussions of a possible deal? And we've been talking about for weeks on this program, um, you know, the, the pressure that the Biden administration is under here and how it's uh, tearing part of the uh, um, his Democratic supporters away from him with his support of Israel. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that I think the the Biden administration probably feels an enormous amount of pressure Um to make some progress here, at least, you know, going into the election once, um, you know, we're sort of into the general election season. Um, and depending on how the deal goes, I mean, I think it could really relieve some of the pressure. I just, you know, if, uh, especially if you're a democratic voter, it's possible that you're seeing sort of in your social network online, uh, or, you know, in conversations, just a lot of conversations about what life is like in Gaza right now. And it's it's heartbreaking, um, you know, to sort of see those images. And every sort of time, if, if you sort of mentally, emotionally connect that back to Biden, that's not great uh, for the general election prospects. Um, and so even if it's just that people don't feel enthusiastic about turning out to vote for him, that's still just as much of a problem as people changing their minds and voting for someone else. You need people to show up and show out for you. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of pressure to get that done. And I also think there's sort of pressure mounting, um, you know, just sort of thinking morally and ethically about uh, yeah. combating what's been happening there. Yeah. And to end that massive suffering in Gaza right now of, of so many innocents, uh, uh, the death and the injury there. Um, the, the wider picture here of the uh, Middle East conflict. Uh, yesterday, we had President Biden say that he had decided on a U.S. response to the weekend drone attack that killed three American soldiers in Jordan. Uh, an Iranian military leader appeared to signal the country would not escalate tensions, uh, and a militia blamed for a deadly strike. That deadly strike said it would halt its attacks. Uh, Jim, what are you seeing uh, in uh, well, we're going to have an we have an impending response by the U.S. military here, but uh, how do you judge the reactions coming out of uh, Iran and these militia allied with Iran? Well, I think part of the reason for these kind of statements by the group that apparently carried out this attack 
and also from Iran is that they 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 were fearful that you know that the Americans would actually attack attack Iran or have a kind of a massive massive kind of response. Uh, I think that they think that by making these statements they will more close that as really an option. My own sense is that given the kind of hints that we've been given by the administration, I suspect what we're going to see is a multi-phase and multi-prong kind of response because up to this time, you know, there's only been eight responses by the United States over these 160 attacks that have occurred uh, in Iraq and Syria against American outposts here. And so I think what, what's going to likely happen is that there's going to be, you know, yes, use of air and, 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 uh, and sea efforts here, as well as separate special operations. And I think this, this will go over time. I don't think just a singular attack or even uh, a short-term attack will do enough to demonstrate deterrence, which is what, what has been the basis of, of uh, the Biden administration policy and their, and their efforts at these kind of, you know, these separate attacks, uh, eight separate attacks, really haven't brought about this deterrence. So I think probably what they're going to do is have it, have it over time and have it, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of using different kind of uh, actions, including special operations, which, you know, may not be as public as, as some of these other events. Yes, spread over time, but what about the targets, Jim? Because we have both in Syria and Iraq, we have yeah. Iranians. I, I don't. Uh, I don't think they'll have, go into Iran. Have, yeah, n- not into Iran. Yeah, I don't but we think have they'll Iranians go in-, in both of those. But, but will they target Iranians in those two countries outside of Iran? I guess is the question, isn't it? Yes, I think so. I think I think they will. I mean, you know, those are the militias that are supported, and maybe and some of the uh, uh, trainers are the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And so I suspect that those would be would be sources of, of targets. But I, I think that will my own sense is that they don't want do not want to go into Iran because that that suggests a step level increase in terms of the events. I mean, they talk about not escalating the conflict, although obviously it has escalated already in terms of whether it's in Yemen or in, in Syria and, and, and Iraq. So I think that that those would be the, the sort of the outer limits. I don't see them. Uh, targeting inside Iran. Mm-hmm. Domestic repercussions here of a, a possible ramp up these strikes. Megan, uh, your thoughts on on uh, here at home the repercussions possibly. Yeah, you know, what I didn't anticipate, I think, going into 2024 is that we are going to revisit so strongly uh, what political scientists have for a long time called the bread and peace model, uh, which is basically that when the economy is doing well and we don't have a lot of military um, casualties, the incumbent will do well in the election. Um but that is to say, I don't think, you know, thinking domestically that there is also as there is pressure on Biden in, in so many directions right now uh, heading into the election. But I think there's also considerable pressure to really not uh, engage um, in a way that could be perceived as sort of unnecessary or really like as little as possible engage in acts of warfare um, and, and military engagements, because that's just sort of like ripe for uh, criticism and discontent. Um, and so I think there's a lot of pressure to resolve things quickly um, and sort of with as minimal like impact and honestly like sort of publicity as possible. And that's not to say like hiding it necessarily, but you don't want headline news uh, about this sort of type of military engagement, especially, you know, I think um, 
in the Middle East, people in the U.S. still harbor a lot of um, emotional reactions about, you know, if you sort of grew mm -hmm. up in a post or were an adult in the post 9-11 world. Uh, we have a lot of feelings yep. about about this sort of um, military engagement. Megan Goldberg of Cornell College, Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, thank you so much for your thoughts. And uh, to our callers, thank you for the great questions and comments. Megan and Jim, until next time. Thanks, Ben. Thank you very much, Ben. Tomorrow on the program, we explore the fascinating life of Harold E. Hughes, a former governor of Iowa and U.S. senator, served in the 1960s and early 70s. Fascinating new biography of him to explore tomorrow. Today's program produced by Samantha McIntosh with help from Maddie Willis and Steve Cooper and Sean McLean. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.